When did we go from being casual fans to fan club members to stands of artists? When did fan clubs turn into full fandoms and become such a big part of fans' identities? How has the internet accelerated that as well as other trends? How did we become such passionate fan bases? And for better and for worse, how are we showing our true selves or changing our true selves in the process of being and staying fans and recruiting other people into the fandoms? How do we want these fandoms to be remembered? Are we less likely to leave our fandoms now that we're, more, we're spending more time invested in them every day? Or is that extra time having the opposite effect, causing fatigue, a saturation, and an exposure to the dark underbelly of certain fandoms in the members that have bad intentions? How do we reconcile the, the fans that do terrible things within our own fandoms with the ability to still continue supporting our favorites while still not excusing their behavior? What are the ethics of fandoms these days? How do we even know what those look like? What, what do fans do to get compensated for the free publicity they give their favorite stars? And really, ultimately, what does it mean to be a fan? What is fandom culture? And what, what is the history of it? Who, who, gets to gra who gravitates toward what artists and why? Why are certain fandoms considered mainstream while others are cast aside and dismissed as insignificant or just worth belittling overall? How are fans around the world interacting and connecting with each other through their shared interests? And who is excluded or included from these fandom groups and interests? Who is encouraged to join and who is excluded from doing so? All of these questions and more are what I want to get at in this new mini-series, How to Stand. If you subscribe to 17 Karat K-Pop, you will get these miniseries episodes as they are released regularly over the next few weeks, where I will be unpacking what it means to be a fan, what it has meant in the past, and what it might mean going forward in the future. If you want to get more information about the show and the references made in it, I will be having links revealed on the 17 Karat K-Pop website as well as through the newsletter. Visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com for more information about that. Thank you and enjoy the show. Hello everybody and welcome back to How to Stand. This is episode 3, Miku Holograms and a Redefining of Reality. We're going to start today's show by going back to 17th century Japan, where Bunraku was at an all-time high. Bunraku is a Japanese form of puppetry, basically characterized by puppets where they're on stage and the humans are as well. The humans intentionally show themselves on stage with the puppets, and often there's a third person voicing the puppet. So you might have the puppet that is the person that is a puppet, the person holding the puppet, and the person that is the voice of the puppet, and these people make up the different parts of that character's performance. But as Western influence rose in Japan from the period of about 1868 to 1912, the increase of Western influences where in the West there was not that there was the opposite, where puppets were expected to be on stage and the puppeteers were expected to stay hidden. That influence led to the decline of this traditional Japanese form of puppetry. So it declined in popularity during that period. And really, the reason cited for that was by an academic scholar, Roland Barthes, who in 1971 wrote, quote, Western theater, where its basis is found not so much in the illusion of reality as the illusion of totality. Through this, in Western theater, 
Barthes asserts the totality of the elements is the foundation for illusion and that they are indivisible and perceived as such. So this piece in Barthes' comments basically said that the reason why Bunraku did not take off globally and had a bit of a tampered down influence due to the West expansion of ideas was that there was a totally r different reconceptualization in the different parts of the world of illusion versus reality. Whereas there is there was the contrast drawn between illusion of reality and illusion of totality. So in the West, there was the desire to have an illusion of totality, where you didn't see who was the man behind the curtain. It was all a Wizard of Oz of performances, where you just saw the character, and you just you viewed the voice as the characters, the, the movements as the characters, and you didn't see the people behind the scenes operating the character. Whereas in Japan, the focus was on the illusion of reality, where you were always consciously aware that the character was not real in a way. It was being operated by people. And so that just led to a total, there was a total disconnect between the definitions of what is real and what people wanted to see in a performance and how much they wanted to view the performance in their definition of real. So in a sociology piece from 1983, Jenkins says, quote, Watching the puppet's manipulators, we acknowledge that the puppet is an illusion at the same time that we allow ourselves to be deceived by the illusion. Bunraku dares us to disbelieve, but we refuse. We continue to cling to the unreality as if it were real, despite the blatant evidence to the contrary. For a few timeless and irrational moments, the Bunraku puppet connects us to our naked hunger for illusion. Basically saying that we really actually, if we realize it or not, desire authenticity. And we want to see what is considered real. And so sometimes that requires a negotiated definition of what is real. And so this all really shows that how different societies interpret reality and what is truly considered a work of art or uh, something that needs to be worked on performance-wise, aesthetic-wise, optics-wise. There are fundamental differences throughout history between Eastern and Western societies about how to conceptualize those things. And there tends to be, it tends to be a Western thing to really fixate on this perceived fit or disconnect between the person and the voice. A key example being with Zac Efron in the first High School Musical movie. I know it sounds like a weird comparison, but, but stick with me here. So it was quite an uproar and fans were very distraught when they found out that Zac Efron had not actually sung his lines in the first High School Musical movie. It was a different singer, Drew Seeley who I guess they decided wasn't attractive enough to be Troy Bolton to play that character, but had a good enough singing voice for the role. And they decided Zach had the looks, but not the voice, and so they combined them. And that led fans to be distraught. Whereas in Japan, maybe the fans would not have had the same reaction, and that might have been viewed as just whatever. It's a little more normalized, because in the U.S., we do tend to have this fixation on how real something is, and we get upset if we see the curtain pulled back. Whereas in Japan, it's just kind of normal for the curtain to stay open. And so they don't get upset about that sort of thing in the same way. And so if you do see during any performance a misstep, we're going to talk about Millie Vanilli in another episode, but if it's an instance like that where there's a backing track issue that leads to people realizing you're not the one singing, 
that means your performance was a disaster and it's viewed as it all went downhill, whereas in Japan it's just part of the act and it becomes part of the performance. And one key area in which this really comes to a head, this debate over what should be real and what do we want out of a performance and how much it's an illusion or how we define an illusion, is with hologram technology. So, quick backstory with holograms. Basically, a regular picture is a 2D image. It's a reconstruction of a 2D thing. And a hologram is a 3D image. So it's basically dots and light placement coming together to amplify a 2D image in a different way. It, the hologram was created by Dennis Gabor in this electrical engineering facility in 1947. He actually had been trying to just modify basically a super high-tech version of a microscope, but he ended up creating a hologram. Actually, holos comes from the Greek word meaning the whole, and holograms were viewed as basically holding all of the dimensions of the waves and objects light could contain. And so Gabor kept failing really to get the more precise, clear results he had wanted, though. So he had created this hologram, and but he wasn't pleased with what he created because the images he was creating were very blurry or just not as clear and as realistic in his mind as he wanted them to be. So he gave up in 1955. He said, I tried to invent a hologram image. It didn't really work out. It flopped. And he gave up in 1955. However, then lasers were invented in 1960. And then hologram research became a huge thing. People suddenly realized, wow, if lasers can come to come to reality and really be invented, maybe holograms are worth not giving up on and we can improve that image over time. So people really resurrected the effort to improve hologram imagery and the clearness of it in the 1970s, especially in the USA. And then Gabor got a belated Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts in physics in 1971. So that's just a quick backstory about how holograms uh, got to where they are today, and we'll get back to why that's important in a minute. A key example of a hologram that led to some controversy was when Tupac's hologram showed up to end the, number, uh, end the closing number of Snoop Dogg set at Coachella. In 2012, Snoop Dogg brought a Tupac hologram on stage, which became a huge top 10 Twitter search thing for three weeks throughout the aftermath of this incident. So if you thought a 24-hour news cycle was was really um, pushing it and that some stories actually are even shorter, more briefly uh, viral than that, this lasted three weeks trending on Twitter, Tupac Hologram. And it reached within 48 hours, this Tupac Hologram set reached 15 million views on YouTube. And keep in mind, this was in 2012 when YouTube was not even as popular as it is today by far. And Tupac's album sales ended up increasing by more than 500% after this set. It brought him a lot of publicity. And the interesting thing about this was twofold. Because first of all, people were debating the ethics of this. Is that when you have a hologram image of a celebrity, they don't have a say in the use of it. Because if you're using a hologram of them, it's likely because they're dead. Or there's another reason why they can't physically be there. And so if they don't have a say in how that image is used, should it be used? Because it does benefit them. There, it increases people's attention to their music. So with a lot of musicians, that's what they want. Even if it's not about the money, it's about 
the more listeners you get, yes, the more money you might make, but also the more your story is told. And that's what musicians' real life goal seems to be, is to share stories and be heard through music. And so there's quite an ethical debate about this that really came to a head after this set. The second thing, though, that was um, was really worth noting is that people kept debating the ethics of this hologram without realizing that it wasn't even a hologram. It was actually what is called Pepper's Ghost, which is a form of illusion. It was not the same technology that is used with a hologram. The Pepper's Ghost illusion, basically, it's been used ever since this 1862 play of Charles Dickens's that was performed called The Haunted Man and the Ghost Bargain. And so ever since the 1860s, this illusion concept has been used. It's called Pepper's Ghost because it was created by this British scientist named John Henry Pepper. And basically... It's a technique that involves an illusion of a 3D form that projects an image onto a reflective surface. So whereas an actual hologram is 3D, this is kind of a fake version of a 3D thing where it's really just a projection like you would watch anything on a projector screen. It's kind of that level of 2D still. And somehow with the reflective light, we won't get into all the specifics, but it does look look 3D, and but it's really a psych uh, psyching you out because it's not actually a hologram. It's just another uh, way to make a photo look more realistic. This is the same technology that's been used again and again. From Madonna to Gorillas, they've used this type of technology in their sets, and it is often mischaracterized by the media and viewers as a hologram they saw when that's not even what it what it was. Which brings up the debate yet again: is how is this ethical to use the artist's image because? It is just their photo. You can surely use their photos after they've died. Um, so then that suddenly leads to some confusion over, well, if their 2D image that looks 3D is okay to use, where do we draw the line then? And the 3D version is unethical to use without the artist's permission. And so those are issues that companies have had to answer for because, believe it or not, there are several holograms hologram specializing companies out there, one being Base Entertainment, which owns this sub-company called Base Holograms. Base Entertainment has actually been in the hologram business for over 35 years now. Their, their goal really is to do more than create holograms, but they want to design a hybrid experience of concerts and movie screenings in a way that is like a show, like any other show, but incorporating more technology into it, where there's kind of it's kind of like watching a theater show where they hope to have it scripted from the stage movements to the lines to the choreography, but they also really, they want to make it like a concert or something. They want to basically combine different experiences that you would have normally and put them all in one into something unforgettable and something that you just can't watch online, something that you have to physically be there to see and witness and enjoy. And Base Hologram tested out and did a trial run of using their technology for this type of large-scale production in Europe first. Actually, the directors of the project in an interview revealed that they actually started in Europe intentionally because they viewed the audience there as a lot more accepting and willing to accept hologram-level technology, and they viewed that the backlash in ethics as more of a USA-centered concern that is not the same there. Not sure that's true, but that was their their perception of those differences between audiences. And they have insisted time and time again that this is not just a money grab off of dead celebrities. This is their way of honoring them. 
For example, Christina Aguilera was set to perform on the voice finale two songs with Whitney Houston's hologram. And some leaked footage did get out of the rehearsals of it. They were going to perform I Have Nothing and I'm Every Woman together. But the the, the hologram duet was was scrapped from production because they cited a lack of preparation. They said they did not feel like it really did justice to Whitney's legacy yet, so they needed more time to fine-tune the details. And so they really have done that kind of stuff time and time again, where they prepare a big event, but they don't pull it off unless they truly believe they can do so in a way that would make the artist proud. And so if it really would make the artist proud is room for another debate, but their intentions seem very sincere that they want to pull off these works of arts and revive these artists in a way. And so this hologram continues to have goals for the future, such as a 3D-esque dinosaur tour and other, you know, bringing things back to life, species and whatnot to make a new level museum experience. They also hope to find a way to help revive the popularity of malls by having in malls these setups for these types of interactive events that you can't find anywhere else. So they have big ambitions and continue to be doing pretty well with them so far. The Although there continues to be that debate about them, but in a sense all press is good press for them. So that's interesting to keep in mind as well. So Peter Lehman, we need to talk about for a minute. He is the author of a book called Roy Orbison, The Invention of an Alternative Rock Masculinity, and this may not sound like it's related, but just hang in there. So in the book, there's this quote that says, most critics obsessed about the details of the hologram image that was in that set of Roy Orbison, which in fact does not look much like Roy did at all, but the concerts were a great success because of the stunning sound quality, including hearing Roy's voice with nearly the same beauty and power it had live. Remember, everything Orbison ever recorded is left untouched by the hologram. Nothing is destroyed, but something new is added. People who are appalled by this should stay home, but stop worrying about the ruin of the music as we know it. So, that is what supporters and defenders of hologram technology say, basically, in a nutshell, is that this is not taking away from an artist's legacy, it's just adding to it and helping it live on. It can be done in a way that preserves the level of talent and that deserves to be seen in their voice, in their looks. Everything about them that fans love can still be there to the same level it was when they were alive, is what they argue. They also say that it's shouldn't the sh concern should never be that these holograms would replace living living artists because fans will never stop getting tired of seeing living artists as well, but also that these ones, they have great quality performances is what he said, that the this, this show can still be stunning, the vocals can and the sound can still be super clear and impressive in that this is not a, a step back, really, in entertainment. Whether you think it's a step forward is up for debate, but it's not a step back is what he argues, really. And so this continues to be tested about how real we want um, our shows to be and how we define real. So we have many examples from Gorillaz, who are this cartoon band that was created in the late 90s and has really, they reached arena level status on their tours throughout the USA, basically all just uh, just a group of cartoon characters who performed. They're similar anim animated only bands in Japan that are quite normalized and popular. I've talked a lot on my main show, 17 Karat K-Pop, about Michaela and her similar CGI pals who have dabbled in the music industry and have 
have teas possibly going on a hologram tour someday or something else like that. They are doing quite well right now during the pandemic when they can still film music videos because they don't exist anywhere in a physical form. And so the key example that I must bring up as I talk about these digital characters is Miku who I've also talked about a lot on the main show, so I won't go into that too much today, but just please check out 17 Karat K-pop if this interests you. So Miku is sometimes called Hatsune Miku, other times Miku Hatsune, but I just call her Miku, which is what she's mainly known for. She is a vocaloid, which is basically like a voice box that is added to an animated image, and her hologram does go on tour the Miku Expo has gone to different countries from Europe to the USA to Japan. She fills stage, she fills arenas and you know people bring their glow sticks to her shows and dance and sing along and they they get very starstruck at this hologram when her image comes to a city near you. She was even slated to have a cameo at Coachella this year before it got canceled due to the pandemic. But she's also she's really kind of inserted her way into the USA mainstream before as well performing on David Letterman, for example. And so there have been a lot of moments where she actually has been treated like any other musician, even though she doesn't exist in the physical realm. And so Miku really embodies a lot, one of them being the kawaii culture, or at least some of its aspects that we talked about in episode two of How to Stand, where she is this, she's has a very cute, um, classically kawaii look about her where she has these blue pigtails and a little school girl uniform and she's she's a teenager permanently and she basically has a lot of traits that make people feel youthful and they can kind of live their youth again vicariously through her. She's just very cute and lovable and welcoming and she has this high-pitched childlike voice and so that really appeals to people. The other thing that's very interesting is that she acts like any other musician in a lot of ways with her concert sets, which are very elaborate. They and she really, um, she really has developed such a passionate fan base. Which again, I talk about a lot in Seventeen Cure K-pop episodes. So go to those for more on Miku. But she basically, she's really won the world over, and she has been in nearly 200,000 YouTube videos as of recording time, and it continues to go up. Over 1 million works of fan art have been made in her name. She she basically, and the, re, the, the main way she's been able to do this is because she is basically public domain. Her voice box is free for fans to use, so they do. They take her voice and they can make upload their own songs under the name Miku and they can take her likeness and sell fan art with her image on it. So all these artists and musicians and people who like to just play with music and be DJs and mix tunes together, all of these different creative fields people want to get into and maybe they're struggling to break into, they can kind of get into by releasing and officially publishing content through using Miku. She's used as a tool for fans to live out certain certain musical dreams of their own. And so she's kind of this blank canvas in a way. So it's interesting how, yes, she does have have traits and a character backstory, but she also has a lot of personality traits that are 
not there. And it's a fill-in-the-blank thing for fans to give her lyrics, give her choreography, give her new outfits, and decide for her what her story is. So that's why she takes on millions of different forms and has really resonated with fans because they can personalize her in a way that is really exciting for them. And so she's been around for quite a while now. She, uh, well, the company that really made her Yamaha made her with their signature keyboard colors with the electric blue and whatnot. And they debuted the software for her in March 2000, actually with separate people. So there was Leon and Lolo, this set of digital twins that they unveiled in 2000 at a trade show. But then there were several rounds of software upgrades and Miku was born August of 2007. But she's been around since then, as have her friends. So she's branched out into having all these Vocaloid friends that are considered the Vocaloid derivatives. And these characters, are derivatives are basically ones who use old Vocaloid's content. So when Vocaloid's kind of retire in a way, new ones take over, but they might use the same voice banks. Sometimes these are used like seasonal variations of these same characters. And so there are many fan-made versions of derivatives as well that Krypton Media has signed off on and sometimes really makes official. So if a fan posts like, for example, a Christmas Miku uh, song or something, sometimes Krypton Media will actually make that like one of their official promoted releases. So it's really an interesting fan company artist uh, three-way engagement that is happening here. And so basically she... Um, what this has to do with the whole blending of worlds here, I really want to get into, but sorry, you have to listen to this message first. So let me tell you a little bit about Teresa Tane, and it'll make sense why this is related to our topic today in a moment. Teresa Tane is credited with basically becoming the first Chinese singer to make waves in Japan and Southeast Asia. She's the first Chinese singer who got to perform at the Lincoln Theater in the USA. And she, she basically has been cited as one of the most influential singers out of China. She's really considered to have helped break barriers by becoming so popular globally since music from outside of China wasn't permitted before the 70s, really. And so she's really helped in general with the cultural... A global reputation of China and their music market. And she's really been accepted in the West more than people might realize. For example, Bon Jovi even covered her song one year. And in the People's Republic of China, there was this survey one year where Teresa Tang was voted the most influential cultural icon since 1949, with 8.5 million votes going her way. She was featured on CNN's list of the biggest music icons of the past 50 years. She also had a subplot in a Hong Kong film from 96 called Comrades Almost a Love Story, and that movie basically had the subplot based on her life, and the movie ended up, in part due to her subplot and her life story, winning some awards in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and the Seattle Film Festival. So she really had a lot of uh, universal attention. Unfortunately, she passed away after an asthma attack, a while ago, but her career lives on and her memory lives on, and she performed a, as a hologram again after death in 2013 with Jay Chu, another Chinese artist, and her hologram image was also used again for a Japanese TV appearance in 2017. So her cameo during a concert as a hologram clearly had some pretty positive reactions if she was again resurrected for a TV show in 2017. So what this really says about her and about 
the use of holograms is really interesting to ponder and it got me thinking more about this cultural theorist Guy Debord who wrote a book called The Society of the Spectacle and he basically analyzed the term spectacle and what we mean by it. He viewed the term in a very negative light and basically characterized Western culture as such and that Western culture is about putting on a, a spectacle and that's it. So it stays surface level whereas the the, the type of, again, it's that illusion of reality versus illusion totality debate um, where different parts of the world view what is real as a different thing. And in the U.S., he viewed our spectacles as stripped of those layers because we insist on making this whole fake thing seem so real as opposed to just pulling back the curtain and showing the working parts ever and showing what is considered imperfect in some ways. So basically, he viewed some Western art as just visual and not substantive, really, and viewed then what happens is he critiqued spectacles as devoid of nuance and substance and viewed that as kind of a Western thing. So, of course, I'm just looking at big picture trends and strains of thought over time, and I'm not trying to generalize about these worlds at all and how different cultures interpret different things because of course there's so much variety within these different cultures as well about how they view these things but those have been some super broad overall historic trends and lines of thought and really what it all comes down to and what all of this says is that we are at a moment where we are really having to stop and consider with this new digital age what is real and what we mean by real in what is the problem with blurring the lines between reality and, and our fictional worlds and these illusions of sorts? And really, is it that when, when, when human beings that are famous, when famous musicians pass on and they consider no longer real, is that, how is that different from how we conceive of a totally digital character who will never die being a hologram that performs... Um, there are just so many ethical questions to discuss here, and I'm not giving a concrete answer or stance here, but it's a lot to contemplate about what is our hesitation towards certain technology like holograms, why does it make us uneasy? Some of it probably has to do with the uncanny valley theory, which states that basically why some people have like an aversion to certain dolls and other things that appear too lifelike, that it's creepy, we really cringe at. And so the uncanny valley theory basically says that certain robots or just next level technology and AI really freaks us out because it's so human, but we also know somehow deep down that it's not, but it's too lifelike and it's nerve wracking to see. And so that reaction is really what is coming to the forefront now is why do we find some of these things so creepy? What is it about them that we don't like and it makes us nervous? Do we feel like we're being replaced by robots? Do we feel like it's just too uh, unfamiliar to enjoy? What is it about this thing? And so that is just something to think about, again, with no clear answer. And really... There, there is a lot to unpack there, and I think Miku is a great example, really, of this all, where Miku is, is such a blurring of worlds, because she exists 
on fan social media pages every day, and they can upload new content with her, and she's very malleable for them. So she will always be relevant. She will always be loved because people will make her lovable. If they, She can't clap back and say she doesn't like what they did with her reputation because that's she can't do that, and she can't physically walk into a courtroom to sue you, so do what you want. And she is... She's a key example of that uh, ability for fans to shape their artist's content based on their desires in a very unique way because she can't talk back. So that that is one variable that keeps her very relevant and interesting. Another is that she blurs the lines between what's real and what's not, not just through her internet presence and the creation of her actual music and the fan input that goes into it, as well as, I forgot to mention this earlier, she's crowdfunded. So that that's interesting to keep in mind as well, that her projects come from fan donations that make it possible as well. And so she owes her existence to them quite literally. So the other thing she does, though, is she does what a human singer does. She goes on tour. She's on merch. She, she has not a physical presence, but sort of like the 3D hologram presence, an actual hologram used at the shows, not just a reflection of a 2D image. She is a hologram. She, she's, so it's interesting what we decipher between an actual hologram and again, one of those fake outs that looks like it, but she's real and in a way. And so it's interesting what terms we use to apply to her because her performances are with a live band. So physical human beings play the instruments while she is out there performing and dancing. And so, again, and she performs on shows like David Letterman's and at Coachella. So she performs not just in the digital world, but she does performances like a human artist would. And she really likes to, you would could say her popularity comes from passing as a human in that way. But then again, she kind of reverses all expectations because sometimes she actually plays up the fact that she's not real like Michaela does where she sometimes jokes ton-in-cheek about being a robot or not having feelings or not being real she jokes about that with this cheeky self-awareness and it's kind of it's kind of a appealing and charming frankly and so Miku can kind of do that too where she with a wink and a nod will do things during her show like explode into a bunch of pixels or do some other stunt that is clearly not something a human can physically do. And so she basically, she isn't replacing a human experience, but she's kind of a one that is added to in ways that are just not human. And so she's not really trying to replace a human so much as do things they cannot do, but at the same time she can also go back and do what humans do. She can constantly step back and forth between the worlds of the real and the surreal, and that is what makes her so captivating, and that's why these this next level technology really interests people so much. Whether they love it or hate it, they, it's engrossing, and that's because it, it distorts and causes us to rethink our definitions of what is real. So when people say they love Michaela's music and people are like, that's so weird, she's not even real, what do you mean by real? There is a human voice singing that song, there is something uh, operating her image if she ever performs in person as a hologram or something. What is real then? And especially in the social media era, well, everyone's not real. Everyone is just a bunch of pixels on a screen you're looking at all day. So they're just as real to you as they are, right? 
And so that's, it just, it causes us to stop and think about how we view what should be seen on stages and should be seen in the public. And so Miku really further adds to that because if Miku weren't around, then all of these under-the-radar producers and songwriters and choreographers and whatnot would not have, not that they wouldn't have a career, but they wouldn't really have a spotlight to their work and that sense of community and the networking that can come from that. So she's kind of providing job opportunities in a way in this creative outlet for overlooked communities especially. And so she's basically kind of an assistant to all these people that are also helping her. It's an interesting feedback loop. And these feedback loops are just taking on totally unprecedented forms that are very interesting to think about. And so if we go back to what I said about Bunraku, this traditional Japanese puppetry style is the embodiment of what this debate is all about morally, where there's this clash of Western and Eastern views of what should audiences see and consume, what should be up for public uh, consumption, and what should be discarded and hidden or just not be utilized. And so it is, it's just it's something to stop and think about is, why do we get so upset when someone forgets their line on stage and they break the fourth wall? Why do we get so upset when a character, I don't know, like at Disney World, their head falls off or something? Or you do something else where you see the person underneath the suit? Or why do we get upset when we see, you know, in general, a, a prop gets misplaced, a a script or some other line that you're supposed to recite gets shown on your arm. Something destroys the illusion that you are watching. And it's so interesting to think about that those things that disrupt the scene we're watching and trying to escape through, they probably bug us because we're trying to escape and they just reminded us that it's all a facade we're watching. But in Japan and in some other parts of the world, the values they've uh, cultivated over time are not like that at all because... They, you keep the imperfections on stage with you. So not to say one performance style is better or worse, but it just gives a new frame of reference for how people view using technology for performances and stuff as not just dismissed as creepy, but hopefully something to really look at and consider. Because for them, that would just be, they would just carry along with the show. So sometimes that's nicer, where you don't have this sudden devastation at discovering something is not real there over there maybe they they never have that moment because the whole thing is real to them whereas in the western world there's been so much emphasis on making sure the whole illusion is perfectly intact and that nothing is seen that shouldn't be seen and that disrupts that illusion but focusing on that illusion of totality really does cause a downfall sometimes when that technology glitches and then the whole set is deemed a mess and the the show is ruined whereas sometimes if we use eastern val certain values and thoughts that were cultivated through certain elements of eastern culture we can see that actually those moments just make the show more entertaining and you can view that as a more immersive fun experience than the illusion of totality that we keep seeking basically what i'm trying to say is that um Sometimes in the West, the goal seems to be so much at preserving certain illusions and making an immersive experience that people forget to, that the more you try sometimes, the more you might actually fail at creating something that's not real because just, it's inauthentic. 
authenticity is needed, is what I'm trying to say. Um, an act can only go on for so long before the jig is up, and it doesn't need to be up if we re if we reflect and change how we view what a performance needs to include for it to be a success and for it to be entertaining. And so there's just a lot to consider with all of this technology and how it is used, so many more variables that I could go on and on about. But that's really the gist of it is that, you know, dating back to that 17th century puppetry practice, there's been divides in how people view what is what is real and what is just in our heads or surreal or not something that belongs in the physical world and the merging of digital and real worlds comes with shock and concern and confusion for many but why and it's interesting to question why we are nervous at the thought of different and new ways of seeing performers and performances and the people behind the scenes who helped make that performance possible and come to life and the people behind making Miku come to life for example and the joy that these characters can bring to people so just something to think about my other uh, moral of the story I guess is just that you should check out Miku because some of her music really rocks her theme song which is just called Miku by Miku it is really it's so catchy. And so that's another thing is just in general, some of these characters just bring joy. So maybe don't diss them or call them creepy too much just because they're bringing people a lot of joy. And her song is so catchy and fun. And she's just, she's just adorable. And just seeing the fan art and stuff is great and exciting. So if there is a fandom that develops around a character, why tear that down? So something to keep in mind. There are other characters who have storylines and such that fans try to uphold at all costs. And what I mean by that is what I will dissect in the next episode of the show, where I'm going to be talking about Batman and other superheroes and the culture surrounding them and how much people need a certain storyline and are a purist in that sense, or how much they don't get upset if the storyline gets revised over time. So, see you next week and thank you for listening.